So the early church, from the very earliest times, the church understood the crucial role of the prayer for the dead. In fact, most of the graffiti on the tombs in the catacombs, if you've been to Rome, uh, in the first three centuries of the church, which are what? The times of intense, crucial, cruel persecu persecution, when those guys were underground, under the radar, hopefully, they were scratching into the walls, pray for so-and-so who's dead. Now, why would they do that? Because they had that understanding that their prayers could help those who had gone before. Okay? Um, there's even a famous inscription. I, didn't, I almost left it out because I can't remember. if there, I think there's a name here, but I, I've seen it. There's a famous one scratched on the tomb of Peter, which is currently below, of course, St. Peter's in, in Rome, that says, Petros, pro, Petros ora pro... Peter pray for, and I can't remember if it says Eo, him, or another name. But there's a very direct invocation to the first pope to pray for, who is obviously dead by that point, right? Because it's on his tomb. Now, um, a wonderful instance which is in the Liturgy of the Hours, if any of you all do the Liturgy of the Hours, is the prayer of St. Monica, who was St. Augustine's mother. Poor, long-suffering Monica. And Monica dies, and the last thing she writes to her son is, okay, now when I die, please continue to pray for me and offer up Mass for me often, because I hope to be able to move up from, basically she's talking about, you know, you better get me out of purgatory quickly. <laughs> that's what she's saying. All right? So that's, and, and you know, that's fourth century understanding of what that meant. She would, not have, she would not have done so if she didn't understand the value of her prayers for herself after death. We have very early non-canonical examples in the second and third century of the Acts of Paul and Tecla and the Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity. Has anybody read any excerpts from the Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity? Oh my gosh. In the Latin, let me tell you what, especially. It, just that and what I'm saying is, because that's, the person who wrote it, wrote it in that language. We're not seeing it through filters. Just the understanding of the, of the martyrdom of these two young women in North Africa at the end of the second century. And there is a, many mentions of the prayer for the dead. Okay. Now these practices these prayers would have been offered only if Christians believed in purgatory, which is, you know, again, we can call it purgatory. We can call it whatever you want. The name is not infallible. The concept is. You see what I'm saying? I talked about uh, the church fathers, St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, St. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, St. Origen. I couldn't fit them all in here. Um, St. Cyril of Jerusalem was a bishop of Jerusalem in the 4th century. He wrote a, uh, basically a catechism manual, or an RCIA manual would be the closest thing. And he describes the liturgy to the new, new people coming in, and he says, quote, Then, at this part of the Mass, we pray for the Holy Fathers and the bishops that are dead. And in short, for all those who have departed this life in our communion, believing that the souls of those for whom prayers are offered receive very great relief while this holy and tremendous victim lies upon the altar. Meaning what? Offer masses for the dead. Often. And this is St. Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century. Uh, Robert, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, again, one of the pillars of the Council of Trent, kind of uh, put it all together in a very elegant de, de purgatorio, 
de purgatoris, I forgot what he called it, de, de purgatorio, de purgatorio uh, on purgatory, basically a treatise that he wrote um, about purgatory, kind of sums it all up. All right, now, <clears throat> I tried to give you all this understanding because it's going to make a big, a big difference in Romans how we understand justification. Remember I said there are some faith traditions that kind of take their cue from Martin Luther, who was a tremendous theologian, tremendous mind, tremendous mind, and the work also as developed by Calvin and others. Um, but, they, but their understanding is more of a courtroom justification. You're acquitted, but you're, I mean, you know, it's like a technical acquittal. You're guilty, but we didn't serve your papers properly or, you know, something like that. You're still guilty, but we let you off. But you can't be trusted. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of understanding, and you're going to be a victim of this, of this, of this corrupt, just nature that you have, and and we'll continue to throw a tablecloth on you. But you know, there's that sort of forensic courtroom, uh, uh, ob, uh, subjective kind of justification. But then you have the understanding of the church fathers, and, and of the church saying we are justified sons and daughters of the king. And so whatever we may have done before, if we appropriate the merit of Christ on the cross through our own free will, and we live lives of holiness, or at least we're trying to achieve holiness, and we're working on that progressive sanctification, then we are children of the king. And Jesus is our brother. And God is our father. Now, I don't know how if you notice how cataclysmic that concept is, if you compare it to other religions, for example. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, father, you know, the, the father says he is a father to his children. He even compares himself to a mother in Isaiah. I took you and I nurtured you. Or can a mother forget her children? But in other religions, like another religion that is similar, another religion is called people of the book, the religion of the book, like Islam. God is not father. To call God father is a huge faux pas. It's like an insult. Why? Because God is this supreme, transcendent arbiter who is something else who, can, who basically arrogates himself the right to be even irrational or to be cruel. He doesn't owe us an explanation. You know what I'm saying? Not that I'm saying that God owes us an explanation, but God, our, under, our Christian understanding is God is father and we are his children. And that is anathema to somebody in Islam, for example. In, in Islam, we are slaves of this unscrutable Allah, the mysterious and compassionate, but, but we don't, we're not meant to arrive rationally at understanding the claims of the Quran. You see what I'm saying? We're supposed to just believe them. Whereas in the scriptures, we're supposed to use faith and reason, both acknowledging that God gave us both and that God is supremely rational and he is our father and we are his children. So I just want you to see a distinction between uh, what we believe, what we take for granted and what many, many other people in the world don't. And that also, I think, gives us a window in the understanding the mercy of the father for his children in providing this out of purgatory, right? Okay, so no unclean things will enter heaven, okay? So a less than cleansed soul, even if it's covered, as we were talking about that forensic justification, remains a dirty soul. 
and isn't fit for heaven unless it is cleansed or purged. So that sanctification, this, this process I was telling you about, is an absolute requirement. It's not an optional course of action. Meaning, we're not getting to heaven unless we're saints. It's not like there's like, you know, class B saints and class, <laughs> class C and, you know, there's like lower categories. and No. In, in heaven, our, our peace will be his will. En su voluntate, we find our peace. In, 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 that's from Dante's um, Divine Comedy, and it's about the saints. And Dante's asking one of the saints in heaven, hey guys, I see that you're arranged in circles. How, about, how come you're in circle seven, and aren't you envious of the guy in circle three? And, and the, the answer is, en su voluntate es nostra pacem. In his will is our peace. So if there are distinctions in heaven, it's because of the fact that we, we didn't enlarge our containers capable of, of containing God enough. Or, or some of us did more and some of us did less. But either way, we will all be fully, we'll be full of God's love insofar as we can, insofar as our containers are able to contain God's love. Through our progressive sanctification on earth, we may have made our capacity to receive God maybe a bit bigger than the next person. You see what I'm saying? So that would be the only distinction that you would see in heaven between what we did on earth to make ourselves more capable to receive God. But we will all be equally blissful, equally happy, equally satisfied, equally supremely fulfilled. Okay? So I, th I think that's something that should be said as well about sanctification. The Jews believe that they should always pray for the souls of those who have died. For thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men. And that's a quote from Second Chronicles 6. They did not make value judgments. You know, and neither should we. We should pray for all our dead. Okay? And we should know that God is merciful. I mean, you know, in the end, I mean, I'm, I'm saying about three, two or three, four things. And then I'm saying them again. And I'm approaching this through this whole two-hour period. God is merciful. God is Father. God loves us. We need to trust him. We need to be holy. And that's, I'd say, the sum of what we're saying. There's a great story. Um, about it, God's exact for you know exact mercy that kind of illustrates God's mercy. Now there's a there's a difference in there's either blessed or venerable Solanus Casey or the curé of ours. I think it's a curé of ours. You're saying it's Solanus Casey, but anyway, one of those holy guys. Um, somebody's husband had jumped off a bridge and committed suicide, and the widow arrived at the feet of the holy man, saying, "Hey, you know." How can I be, how can I know about my husband's salvation? You know, I mean, he, he, put, a, he put an end to his life. And um, the saint said, it was revealed to me that at the last moment, God gave him mercy and he was saved. That, you know, he, so, which is what, is to say what? That God is capable. First of all, God is capable, okay? God is able. God is able to do anything we want to do, even if we cannot conceive it, even if we haven't even thought about it yet, God can do it. And so God is certainly able to save us at the last minute, no matter what the heck we have done to ourselves. Which is why 
I keep saying mercy because it's mercy. So, you know, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into to, to the whole idea of suicide and all that stuff, but the church looks to God's mercy in situations like that. Okay. Primarily it's God's mercy. So believe it or not, one of the uh, objections of um, non-Catholics to saying masses for the dead is based in money. Because it says, oh, yeah, well, those guys, they want you to say masses so they're going to get rich on what you give them. Ha! <laughs> really? <laughs> All right. Well, um, yes, it's, it's customary to give an offering or a stipend because, you know, I mean, that's only fair, right? But in the United States, the stipend is between 5 and $10. So, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, when you think about it, if you put it in the whole narrative about how the church is rich and is oppressing the poor... And the, and the Pope is dancing around with the coffers of gold in the Vatican. Maybe, if you haven't really thought of it through, it, may, it might make sense. But other than that, it doesn't, right? But just, just remember, people coming who, who say that kind of thing, where they're coming from. Right? Okay. So, the traditional Jewish belief was, of course, the mother's Kaddish. And the prayer was used to ask God to hasten the purification of the loved one's soul. And it was prayed for 11 months only, not a whole year, because it was thought to be an insult to imply that one's loved one's sins were so severe that he would require a full year <laughs> of purification. Um, yeah, keep praying for your loved ones. You know, sometimes, you know, people, people will ask me, they say, well, how do you know? I mean, I've, you know, and, and I know because I pray for all my loved ones every day and all the people who God puts in my heart who are dead. And sometimes I'd be praying for 20, 30 people by name. And I got to remind, I got to remember. And so, and then sometimes I feel, I feel just somebody will fall off the list and somebody will stay falling off the list. And it's fine. In a way, I feel like sometimes the Lord will give me, hey, it's not all about you. It's not on you. You say your prayers, you be, be faithful Pray for these people, but, but, but don't worry about if you don't have every all 19 million people who you're trying to pray for, right? Why? Because it's God's mercy. It's not this legalistic approach, okay? But we are to pray, though, for them. Okay. Now, let's switch gears and talk about indulgences. Indulgence, if anything, after purgatory, indulgence is one of the least understood practices. I've had many people come up to me and say, oh, I thought we didn't do that anymore. Well, you know, it is true that the abuse of indulgences, the sale of indulgences, was one of the great and scandalous triggers of the Reformation. There's no question. Um, there's a Dominican priest, I think his name was Tetzel, and he was a piece of work. I mean, he was all, he was just, you know, he was being a businessman, except that he wasn't a businessman. He was, um, you know, he sh I shouldn't judge him, but he basically abused the practice. He was trying, you know, he was like one of those people you ask to raise money, you know. He was raising money, and he kind of went off the deep edge. And what he did is, and I'm not saying he was the only one, because I think that it was a widespread practice of abusing the sale of indulgences. Now, the church, ex okay, the practice of indulgences is an infallible teaching of the church. They haven't gone anywhere. They have just fallen out of, out of fashion, I suppose. 
Uh, I think that the scandal that was offered by the abuse of the, of the sale of indulgences during the Reformation has echoed down through the ages to the point where a lot of people just don't understand it. But the church gives indulgences not only to help the people in purgatory, but also to spur Christians to works of devotion, penance, and charity. It's almost like, hey, we can't get you to do this any other way, but if you're going to do it for your loved one, well then here, go to confession, go to mass, and do this good work, and you know. So, you know, again, it's the approach of a parent who loves his child, not the approach of a stern taskmaster. So the indulgences are part of the church's infallible teaching. And that means that no Catholic is at liberty to disbelieve in them. The pious use of indulgences dates back into the early days of the church. And the principles underlying indulgences extend back into the Bible itself. Catholics who are uncomfortable with indulgences do not realize exactly how biblical they really are. Let's go to the Indulgentiarium Doctrina, which you have in your handout. His Apostolic Constitution on Indulgences, Pope Paul VI, says, an indulgence, this is the definition, is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sin whose guilt has already been forgiven. Now, does that make sense so far, knowing that we know about purgatory? Why? Because the purpose of purgatory is to help us burn off the temporal punishment due to sin whose guilt has already been forgiven. So what is an indulgence? It's time off, or we can't say time, but it's, it's a reduction of the penalty, right? Of the temporal penalty that remains once the guilt is forgiven which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain defined conditions through the church's help and the church applies this as a minister of redemption when she dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of satisfactions won by Christ and the saints. And again, this is, a, this is Ecclesiology 101. Basically, what is our understanding of the church? The church is not just a building. The church is just not a bunch of old guys dressed in black that live in Rome. Okay, the church is you and me, the whole body of Christ, but not only you and me, because there's a, a fashion, it's fashionable to kind of think of the church as only horizontal, just you and me at the table of the Lord. No, the church is the whole mystical body of Christ. And the, the institutional church has been given and granted a treasury of satisfactions and graces that can be applied to the faithful. That's why the church is considered one of our, uh, is there to assist us in salvation. It's not just there as, in a, as a decoration. It's an integral part and parcel of how we can achieve salvation. It's the, achieve, of course, salvation can be achieved you know, by not availing ourselves of quite as many of all the graces that the church can offer, but it's doing things the hard way. So I, I think it's important to understand exactly what is meant here. The technical definition can be phrased more simply as an indulgence is what we receive when the church lessens the temporal, which means what? Lasting only for a short period of time, penalties to which we may be subject even though our sins have been forgiven. An indulgence, it can be partial or plenary. I'm sure you've heard that. According to as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or apply them to the dead. Are we clear? You can use them for yourself or you can use them for your loved ones or you can do both. 
Now, I remember I said before about, remember the old uh, holy cards had, you know, the recita recitation of this prayer gets you, you know, three weeks off purgatory, etc. We don't do that anymore as of 1967. Because people were getting the wrong idea of what those numbers meant. And now, quote, the grant of a partial indulgence is designated only with the words partial indulgence, without any determination of days of years. So to receive a partial indulgence, who's, who's been, let's just play a game. Who has uh, obtained partial indulgences here? Just raise your hand. And what do you have to do? Just call it out. Pray. Pray. Pray what? Okay. What else? Confession. Mass. Well, yeah, Eucharist. What else? Meditate on the scriptures. I mean, there's various, there's various things that we're supposed to do, right? But the heart of them always contain mass and confession. Always. And prayer. Those are the bones. Now, are those bad things? Are those things we should probably be doing anyway? Uh, can there be such a thing as doing those things too many, too much? Right. So what's happening here? Mother Church is going, okay, okay, here, here's more, more of, an, of an instance of sanctification. It's going to help you and it's going to help your loved ones.